My name is Elise Neville. This is Wrestling Before God, episode number eight, to those who doubt and the people who love them. Wrestling Before God is a podcast where an average member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, me, discusses how I wrestle with some of the biggest questions I have about the gospel. Thanks for being here. So today's a little different. Instead of following the Come Follow Me curriculum for today, I decided to do a podcast about doubt and uh, people who are experiencing doubt and people who are watching their friends experience doubt. I notice a lot of that happening right now, and it's something that I am familiar with. I have a lot of experience with that. So let me start by sharing some of that experience. Um, About 10 years ago, my husband and I, my husband Brad, and I were living in a state that was really far from our family. And that is when I experienced my second and and I think my most recent faith crisis. It was a time of a lot of darkness for me, to be honest. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to go through a faith crisis. It's disorienting. And I remember feeling such despair. In fact, I remember one moment that I was babysitting my friend's children with my own, and I can't really remember anything else that was happening. But I do remember experiencing the thought, I'm forgetting something and racking my brain for what I was forgetting and having the thought occur to me, oh yeah, I'm not sure whether the church is true. And just having this overwhelming, just dread come over me. And I remember feeling similarly at night when I would after I'd put the kids to bed and I'd lay down in bed, I would stare up at the ceiling and just wonder if I dared to roll over to my husband, Brad, and tell him the things that I was thinking. Because I didn't want to leave the church, but I also didn't want to pretend to believe. I didn't want to fake my way through participating in something that had been so meaningful to me and continue to be meaningful to so many people. But at the same time, I was terrified what losing my testimony would mean to my life and my family and my marriage. And those thoughts were so overwhelming that I I didn't even have the mental energy to work through the actual doubts. I was just so overcome with concern about my relationships. And so if you're experiencing that kind of doubt right now, I just want to validate that and help you feel that there are a lot of people who have gone through that. And I'm sorry that you're experiencing that now. Um, And I wanted to continue to give some tips to you that may or may not help you, but there's some things that helped me in my own faith crisis. And I have five tips. And after I'm done speaking to the people who are experiencing doubt, I have five more tips for people who are watching their loved ones experience doubt. So let's just go right into it. Number one, recognize that your questions and your doubt are often evidence that you're taking steps forward. So there's a theory of human development called Fowler's Stages of Faith, and it's based on another theory of development that was explored by Jean Piaget. Uh, His theory was called cognitive development. And in the Fowler's theory, there are six stages. The first three stages are characterized by this belief in religion as a very, very literal very black and white thing and and authority is very important in these stages. So at this t- 
time, you might see a lot of belief in what's called the prosperity theology, which is this understanding that good behavior or obedience is always rewarded by God's blessings. And the flip side of that prosperity theology is that people who disobey or don't believe are not rewarded by God's blessings, and they may even be punished or be unhappy in some way. In this stage, you'll also see that when people encounter inconsistencies in their faith, or when they have some kind of doubt or questions, they'll usually ignore those doubt or questions so that they can avoid conflict. As I mentioned already, authority is really important in these stages, and leaders are often perceived as being infallible, and everything leaders do is right in these stages, usually. Um, and we see some people that will stay in these stages for their whole lives, and that might work just great for them. But not everybody stays in those stages. Stage four usually begins in early adulthood, and that's the point where people start to question. This stage for some people might be really minor, and for other people it can be totally earth-shattering. And sometimes people are introduced to this stage by some kind of catalyst. I've known people who, for the first time in this stage, realize that people who drink coffee or break the Sabbath are still capable of being good people, and that's been revelatory for them and has really caused them to question their faith framework. There are other people who are struck by intense loss or tragedy, and that can cause them to question their foundational belief in that prosperity theology, right? Or it could be that people start to see their leaders as fallible, or in some cases even like fundamentally flawed, because sometimes that happens. And for me, I was introduced into this stage initially by some historical issues that I started to explore that seemed inconsistent with my concrete concrete belief system. And I there were lots of historical issues that I was struggling with. And so if you're one who's doubting, this is the stage I'm guessing you're in. And this is reason for congratulations, because you're starting to really carefully think through and analyze your personal beliefs. And those questions are evidence that you're growing but I get that it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> and it probably doesn't feel good. It can be uncomfortable and in some cases excruciating. I know for me, it was very painful. And in some cases, it's so painful that it's intolerable. And it just feels better to leave entirely rather than have to wrestle with these things. And I totally get that. And you can do that. You also don't have to do that. Leaving your faith is not the inevitable conclusion that comes from the questions you have. If you want to, you can choose to move through stage four into stages five and six. And stages five and six offer relief and healing. And people in these phase stages are really comfortable with nuance. And they're comfortable with paradox. And they're comfortable with sometimes not knowing the answers. These people are really active in their faith and dedicated. And they also see value in other faith traditions because they recognize that those faith traditions can inform and enrich their own experience. They recognize all of humanity as valuable and precious and worth serving. These are people like Gandhi and Mother Teresa 
and Leo Tolstoy. So I was in stage four for a few very long periods of time. I had some real questions to wrestle with and reconcile. But when it came down to actually making the choice about whether to leave the church, I have always felt pulled to stay and not necessarily for community reasons or social pressure. Really, I felt pulled to stay because I admired so much those people in stages five and six. I looked to them as people who were beautifully giving their lives in service. And I found that, at the risk of sounding cheesy, really poetic. And I found discipleship just a stunning way of living your life. So because of that, because I've admired that perspective, I've always been able to reconcile my issues so that I can stay. Now, your motivation may look different, but if you want to move on to that next faith stage, it'd be helpful to keep in mind what your motivation is to do that. Tip number two, embrace paradox. So my dad served a mission in Taiwan, and he brought home with him Baoding balls. I hope I said that right, Dad. They were really heavy. They were made of marble, gray and white marble. They were larger than golf balls, but smaller than tennis balls. And he kept them in this beautiful clasped box in his top dresser drawer. And I used to take them from the box, and I would hold them both in my right hand. And that in itself was a challenge because they were large and heavy and my hands were small, like most children's. And then the goal was to be able to rotate them in that hand. And the idea is that that rotation improves the dexterity and strength and agility of that hand. And I think this skill is also true of our brains because just as rotating two Baoding balls in the same hand increases that dexterity and flexibility, I feel like being able to hold competing ideas in my brain also expands my brain's ability to comprehend complex thought. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, quote, The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Close quote. That ability that F. Scott Fitzgerald talks about has started to be researched and It's being called the paradox mindset. Before we go any further, let's define what a paradox is. So the Oxford Dictionary defines paradox as, quote, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may may prove to be true. So again, two things that seem like they conflict, but when explained or explored more deeply, can actually coexist or be reconciled. BBC did an article on this titled Why the Paradox Mindset is the Key to Success, and they talked about a study done by Harvard University psychiatrist Albert Rothenberg. And his study took into account the experiences of 22 Nobel laureates, as well as the writings and the journals and the experiences of scientists who have passed away. And the study found, quote, that each revolutionary thinker had spent considerable time actively conceiving multiple opposites or antitheses simultaneously. 
Einstein, for instance, contemplated how an object could be both at rest and moving, depending on the position of the observer, a consideration that ultimately led to his relativity theory. Danish physicist Niels Bohr tried to reconcile the ways that energy acted like both waves and particles, states that existed simultaneously even though they could not be observed together. This train of thought ultimately inspired a startling new understanding of quantum mechanics. Most of us do not have Einstein's genius, of course, but a series of studies have shown that paradoxical cognition can also help more average thinkers to solve everyday problems and organizations to enhance their performance. So as one of those more average thinkers, I agree that this ability to think in paradoxes, I feel like has increased my ability to problem solve. And as I've looked at people that I admire and cultures that I respect, I see paradox scattered in their wisdom literature. Jesus, for example, is one of those people who speaks in paradoxes. He teaches the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he says things like, whosoever finds his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So to exercise this skill, when I come up against a truth or an idea that seems to be in direct conflict with an important component of my testimony, it's usually really uncomfortable for me. But instead of shying away from that discomfort, I lean into that discomfort and really ponder how both those ideas can live together. This takes a long time. It's the process of rotating those bounding balls in your hand, right? And mulling those ideas through your brain over and over until you find a way that they can reconcile and your brain becomes more capable of that complex thought. So I'll give you one example of a paradox that was really difficult for me to reconcile. So occasionally, hopefully actually very, very rarely in the church, we see examples of priesthood leaders who are not just fallible, but actually participate in some kind of serious sin. And after witnessing this happen, I was confused because I knew that I had seen this priesthood leader also act in ways that were deeply inspired, and there was no other explanation for that. So I had to reconcile how could this leader be deeply inspired while participating in something that would make him unworthy. I spent months rotating those ideas in my brain. And eventually I came to a conclusion that is much better stated by President Holland. And he said, quote, imperfect people are all God has ever had to work with, close quote. My study of the scriptures and the Bible confirms that truth. Heavenly Father always works with flawed people and in some cases, really sinful people. The prophets are, in many cases, the prophets in the Old Testament are fundamentally flawed. (laughs) And yet, God chooses to work through them to bless the lives of humanity. And in many ways, that has started, that idea has started to give me a lot of comfort, even in my callings in the church, when I feel like I can't give all that I need to give to make, um, to fully magnify my calling. It's helpful for me to remember, I am flawed also, but I think Heavenly Father can work through me even when I'm struggling to give more than I can in this situation. As you mull ideas over and over in your brain, you may find that some things reconcile easily 
Some take a long time and some may seem totally impossible to reconcile. Some probably are impossible to reconcile. Maybe some of the things you're trying to hold at the same time are not paradoxes. They're just contradictory. And you get to be the one to, to make that judgment call. You get to decide what you think is reconcilable and what you think is irreconcilable. You may decide to, as you're struggling with ideas, throw out one of the ideas and keep the other one. You may decide to throw out both ideas. You may decide to throw out a bunch of ideas or even an entire paradigm. And you get to be the one to decide. Because in a situation where you're not able to reconcile and you have tough choices to make, I believe it's really important for you to follow your own conscience. And I think when people follow their consciences, the outcomes are sometimes really different from each other. For that reason, I take a lot of comfort in what Elder Christofferson has said. He said, quote, Not all consciences come to the same conclusion on every matter. Personalities, perspectives, histories, and circumstances are too diverse for that. But they tend to promote the greater good, not serve personal interests or the demand of blind ideology. Close quote. So do what you feel is the right thing, even if it's different from what other people are doing. All right, number three, when a doubt crops up, pay attention and study it out. Scottish author, and he's also a Christian minister, George MacDonald wrote, quote, Doubts are messengers of the living one to rouse the honest heart. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet, but have to be understood. Close quote. I love everything about this quote because it makes me feel like my doubts are not curses or disappointments. They're invitations to understand and to more fully embrace the gospel. And I love looking at doubt that way because sometimes in the church, we're asked to put our doubts on a proverbial shelf. But I found that you know, when you put too many things on that shelf, it can come crashing down and then you have a real problem on your hands. In my first faith crisis, I was 17 and I had learned a lot about historical issues that I was very unfamiliar with. One of the things I learned about was Joseph Smith's polygamy and the age of some of his wives, etc. And I wasn't able to reconcile it at the time. I was very bothered. And to be honest, there wasn't a lot of easily accessible research available to me when I was 17 because I'm old and the internet is young. <laughs> so I did shelve it. And because I shelved it, it did come up later as a big concern. It didn't go away. So the next time it came up, I spent time reading and I spent a ton of time researching, and I spent a ton of time in original documents. The Joseph Smith Papers Project is incredible, and it's a wonderful resource to learn more about church history from firsthand accounts. But after all that research that I did, Joseph Smith started to come into focus as more of a whole person with a personality that I really loved and appreciated and was grateful for. And the idea of him as a polygamist was much less upsetting when I had that whole picture together. Patrick Mason has said something along the lines of, don't let the first thing you read be the last thing you read. 
And historian Rick Turley said something also similar, quote, don't study church history too little, close quote. Keep in mind as you're studying that two people can see the same kinds of information and come to completely different conclusions. And I, and, and you get to decide which conclusions feel best to you. Because the truth is, no one can definitively prove that God is real or that Joseph Smith is a prophet. Neither can anyone prove that God isn't real or that Joseph Smith isn't a prophet. And so ultimately, the decisions you make, whether to believe or not to believe, are based on your personality and your bias and things that you love. So keep that in mind as you're studying and researching that you get to choose how you view this information. It's fascinating to me how things that cause me doubt are perceived in a completely different way by other people. One of these people is church historian Leonard Arrington. He served as the church historian during the 70s, and he was really encouraging the church to make available all of the original documents and to open up the archives so that people could see for themselves what's there. Basically, his message was, there's nothing to hide. He said, quote, of course we want the truth in church history, and those of us who have worked intimately with the documents during the past years are confident that the truth is palatable and basically, if not completely, faith-promoting. And that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? If this really is the Lord's church? Close quote. He has so many statements like this. He believed that everything he read was faith-promoting, which I love and I find so interesting. It may be tempting as you learn more about church history or as you study things that what you're learning makes it impossible to believe, but this just isn't the case. And that leads me to my next tip, which is number four, be humble. One of my favorite historians, W. Paul Reeve, conveys this sentiment the best. He says, quote, as an intellectual, my reliance upon faith is an important check against the excesses of smug self-assurance and the temptation to counsel the Lord, study the ark, or think I know better how to minister a gospel outreach than those whose burden it actually is to consider the weight of the world. The prophet Isaiah perhaps expressed it best when he warned, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Or as Paul puts it in, a, in an epistle to the Romans, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Close quote. Be humble in recognizing that you're not the first to ask these questions. There are a lot of smart people who've come before you, who've answered these questions to their own satisfaction. And some of these people came to conclusions that caused them to abandon belief, while others, like our friend Leonard Arrington, came to conclusions that supported and solidified their belief. Again, the choice you make to believe or not to believe is a choice that's subject to your own bias and the things you love. And as I mentioned earlier, even in my doubts, I was always captivated and awed by the beauty of lived faith. And I've always been drawn to conclusions to my doubts that allow me to believe. And your conclusions will reflect your own love and your personality. And I feel like faith is designed to be that way. It's meant to teach us something about ourselves. And if you choose faith, you may, drawn, you may be drawn to something other than the beauty of it like I'm drawn to. Maybe you'll be drawn to the community or to the practicality or to the elegance of the solutions that it 
demonstrates. I don't know. But if you're looking for a way to believe because you want to continue to believe, but you're having trouble finding it, one place that has been very helpful for me to start is the website LDS Scholars Testify, which I'll link to in the show notes. And also helpful is a book series called Why I Believe. They're both excellent. They're full of testimonies from academics from a wide variety of disciplines, and um, I highly recommend reading those. I'm also going to recommend reading the work of some people that I have found very influential, pivotal, even in my life, and I'm just going to list them out here. Patrick Mason, Nyland McBain, W. Paul Reeve, Susan Easton Black, Terrell and Fiona Givens, Brian and Laura Hales, Hugh Nibley, Darius Gray, Margaret Blair Young, Leonard Arrington, Richard L. Anderson, Eugene England, and then just for faith in general, not specifically LDS faith, of course, C.S. Lewis and Tim Mackey. And I'll add those people to the show list as well. And if you have your own, please comment about those. I'd love to hear about them. Finally, this is the last tip I promise for you. Number five, if you can, be vulnerable to someone. I understand that this may be a luxury you don't have. Sometimes it feels like when you're in a faith crisis, if you tell anyone, you'll be judged and you'll lose the stability of your relationship with them. And it feels like you have to make a decision about whether to stay or leave because there's too much pressure on that relationship, right? And I totally get that. But if you do have a relationship in your life that's stable and you feel like is judgment-free and you can tell them that you're struggling and they can support you and love you no matter what, I highly recommend letting someone know because it is very freeing to feel loved when you're exploring these challenges to your faith. If your experience is anything like mine, as your doubts start to pile up, it feels like pressure is mounting and mounting like like an instant pot and it feels big and it feels looming and it intrudes on every hour of your day. And with this much pressure, I think it's common for some people to leave the church a bit prematurely before they've actually had time to really wrestle and weigh things out. But they leave because then the pressure is relieved and the decision is made and something about their lives feels stable. But you can also relieve that pressure by talking to someone whose love you can depend on. Let them know how difficult of an experience this is and that you just need to know that they love you no matter what. And when you have that stability, you can take the time to really think through what you want to believe and what that looks like for you. And that decision doesn't have to be made under pressure. Okay, I am done talking to the people in faith crisis. Now I'll talk to those of you who love someone in faith crisis. Let me give you also five tips that can help you support your loved one and also cope personally as you watch them struggle with that. The first tip is a quick one. Number one, recognize that asking questions and having doubts is very normal and it's a crucial part of human development and it's not necessarily the consequence of sin or rebellion. I will refer you back to the section at the beginning of this podcast on Fowler stages of faith, and that's all I'll say about that. Number two, honor their agency. So it's highly possible, even likely, that by the time you hear about your loved one who has had a faith crisis, that it's already over and they've already made a decision, and in many cases, it's to leave the church. And they get to make that choice. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about 
God's perspective of choice. He says, quote, why did God give free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is like mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, that is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real harm or good and something of real importance can happen, instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then it is a price worth paying. Close quote. The more I learn about agency, the more I feel like it really is the point of this life that it's an opportunity to learn about ourselves and about the way people and relationships work and to learn about God. And that opportunity to choose helps us become more fully us. Like C.S. Lewis states, we're not meant to be robots. We're meant to be people with real relationships. And that often means that we'll be in relationships with people who make choices that are different than the ones that we would make. And sometimes they choose to leave the church. And they choose to leave for all sorts of reasons. Many of my friends and family have chosen to leave for reasons that they have carefully weighed and pondered and thought through. And when this is the case, it may be tempting to be dismissive because they've come to different conclusions than we have. When people disagree with us, it can throw into question our understanding of right and wrong. But it is possible to cherish what you believe while also honoring and respecting their choices to believe or not believe. Joseph Smith thought it was so important to honor and respect the beliefs of others when we disagree with them. In fact, he said, quote, I never thought it was right to call up a man and try him because he erred in doctrine. I want the liberty of thinking and believing as I please. It feels so good not to be trammeled, close quote. So as our friends and family are exercising their agency, let's believe that the choices they're making will get them exactly where they need to be. Number three, perhaps consider replacing the motto, no empty chairs with a new one. So maybe not all of you are familiar with this motto, and I hesitate to say this because I really love the motto. It's a phrase that people sometimes hang on their walls, and the idea is that when we get to heaven, there will be no empty chairs. We'll all be together as a family. I think it's a beautiful sentiment. But I've also witnessed people experience sadness when they have their children leave the church, and now they think of their children as empty chairs. I think Patrick Mason, again, puts it beautifully, quote, The kingdom of God can't be reduced to a Norman Rockwell portrait of Thanksgiving dinner. Close quote. The truth is we don't really know very much about what heaven looks like. And I think it might be shortchanging heaven to think about it as a sad place where we're missing some of our people. We don't even know if the kingdoms are physically separated from each other. All we really know is that the kingdoms 
of heaven are composed of different degrees of glory. And so with that in mind, maybe we abandon the idea of sad heaven. And instead, I really feel strongly that it's important that we put faith in God's command for us to participate in the sealing ordinances as revealed by Joseph Smith, which bind the whole human family together. And that brings me to number four, which is remember how profoundly merciful the plan of salvation as revealed to Joseph Smith actually is. I can't say this enough. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is completely and utterly radically inclusive in its doctrine of salvation and exaltation. There are very few churches that save as many of God's children in their doctrine as ours does. And that should bring us so much hope and peace when we consider the destinies of our friends and family who may never return to the faith. This doctrine was so revolutionary when it was revealed in section 76 to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon that people people's minds were blown and they left the church in large case because it saved too many people. <laughs> In fact, as Brigham Young Brigham Young explained this time by saying, quote, When God revealed to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon that there was a place prepared for all, according to the light they had received, and their rejection of evil and practice of good, it was a great trial to many. And some apostatized, because God was not going to send to everlasting punishment heathens and infants, but had a place of salvation in due time for all, and would bless the honest and virtuous and truthful, whether they ever belonged to any church or not. It was a new doctrine to this generation, and many stumbled at it. Close quote. There was one member of the church in a branch who was so upset about this doctrine that he said the revelation was from Satan, and he, quote, believed it no more than he believed the devil was crucified, close quote, and, quote, would not have the vision taught in the church for a thousand dollars, close quote, which at the time was a large amount of money. It was even hard for Brigham Young at the time, and I love his explanation of how he dealt with it. He said, quote, my traditions were such that when the vision came first to me, and when he says the vision, he's talking about section 76, it was so directly contrary and opposed to my former education, I said, wait a little. I did not reject it, but I could not understand it. Close quote. Brigham Young's brother, Joseph, had a similar experience. He said, quote, when I came to read the visions of the different glories of the eternal world and of the sufferings of the wicked, I could not believe it at the first. Why the Lord was going to save everybody. Close quote. I love these quotes because it reminds us, it should remind us how merciful the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And I'm just going to read a few more quotes about LDS doctrine on salvation. Joseph Smith said, Quote, our Heavenly Father is more liberal in his views and boundless in his mercies and blessings than we are ready to believe or receive. Close quote. And Brigham Young further stated, quote, He is compassionate to all the works of his hands. The plan of his redemption and salvation and mercy is stretched out over all, and his plans are to gather up and bring together and save all the inhabitants of the earth, with the exception of those who have received the Holy Ghost and sinned against it. With this exception, all the world besides shall be saved. Is not this universalism? 
it borders very close upon it, close quote. It may feel like this generous salvation gospel hasn't been getting a ton of emphasis in the church during past generations, and there is good reason for that. In his book, Restoration, Patrick Mason describes visiting a fortress church in Europe. It has a moat and a drawbridge. It was a place for people to withdraw for protection and safety. And members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were in that safety-seeking position for many years. Their lives were threatened for their beliefs. There was real value in identifying people as on our side and not on our side. But we're not in that position anymore. Our lives aren't threatened by people who don't believe. We have the freedom to open our arms wide, embracing the doctrine that's taught in the church, and remember that our Heavenly Father's salvation is generous. Number five, love your people. So we're probably all pretty familiar with the story of Jesus, who is approached by a young ruler who tells him he's been following the commandments since his childhood. What else can he do to follow Jesus? And before Jesus gives him the answer, there's this beautiful line in the scriptures that says, and Jesus beholding him, loved him. Jesus's love comes before the young ruler's decision. And his love is offered regardless of that decision, right? And I think we can learn something as followers of Jesus Christ from Jesus's response. We can love the people around us. I remember the night that I actually finally did roll over in bed and turn to Brad and say, Brad, what if I don't have a testimony anymore? And it was so difficult to say that. I just remember that I was choking back the tears. It was actually painful to speak. And I was so afraid of his response. I was afraid he would reject me. But he was so empathetic and he was comforting. He was quiet for a while while he figured out what to say. But he explained to me that his love for me didn't depend on me staying in the church. And he didn't need me to believe that he had his own testimony and that if I were to leave the church, it wouldn't change any of his choices. And he spent a long time listening to me and remarking to me how sorry he was that I'd felt so alone and sad. And we didn't talk about the specifics of my doubt. I didn't really want to burden him with them, and he didn't ask. But I fell asleep that night feeling such relief Feeling that love gave me freedom to explore my doubts in a way that I wasn't afraid. I knew that my relationships were stable. I knew that Brad loved me no matter what. And from that place, I could analyze my belief system. And I found a much deeper and stronger testimony than I'd previously had. That may not be everybody's experience, but I really believe that as we show love for each other, regardless of the outcomes, we become better disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay, we are at the end. Now, if you or a loved one is currently experiencing doubts and you're still feeling unsettled or like this didn't have all the answers, that's to be expected. You're exactly where you're meant to be because you're going to experience your own wrestling and resolution and you're meant to work with God and take this path and find your own way. And that's true of everyone else too. So as you see others wrestling with questions and doubts, it's important to be a stable source of love. It's human nature to want our beliefs, views, and opinions to align with those around us, especially the people we love. 
But I don't think we achieve Zion through sameness. I think we get to experience Zion by allowing others to be in a different place than we are and love them still. This podcast wasn't meant to solve your doubts, but to shed light on how normal and necessary it is to question and to help you through that process. This is the work that you get to do as you spiritually mature and as you deliberately choose what you want your life to look like and how you want your relationships to feel. Thanks again for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it or leave a review. It really helps. Thanks again. Thanks again.